0: You know, before I uh, actually begin, why don't we uh, bow our heads and pray again. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to begin with us acknowledging your goodness and that you are able, Lord, to fill us with the knowledge of your will and with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We thank you for that, Lord, and I pray that as we um, enjoy this day together, this time of gathering, that you would continue your work in us to build our appreciation of who you are, our love for you, and our knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my original plan was to continue our good habit of expositional sermons. And that's what I set out to do when Cliff asked me a month ago or so if I would preach this Sunday, and that was my intention, but it may not, this is not going to be an actual expositional type sermon, I think. I'm going to, I mean, this is, as you can see, you know, I didn't change the title from when I started. But what I originally thought the sermon would turn out to be, what the message would entail, how I would, uh, you know, delve into the text, ended up going in a different direction, and that's what I'm going to go with. And that's why you don't have any notes in your, um, in your bulletin. If you want to take notes, you know, scribble on the back of, you know, on the margins of the, the bulletin, or open up your notes app, but you're not required to. I'm going to uh, pretty much riff. <laughs> well, I'm not going to riff. I'm going to actually read directly from my script because um, I want to keep it on track. But I could riff, but I'm going to keep it on track by reading from my, what I wrote down. So just go with me, and uh, you'll see where this whole thing ends up. Because what I want to talk to you about, despite the title that you see on the slide up there is the importance of reading the Bible. And you know it, it's going, you may think it's going to be a stretch and it, it will be, but I will stretch us there, trust me. Because many of us, right, are doing, I mean, we do a Bible calendar. We read our Bibles daily, We have some sort of reading plan that um, we do. Perhaps you do a one-year Bible plan where you read the entire Bible over the course of the year. We're three months into that, and if you've kept it up and are still going, good for you. I applaud you. You're doing a good thing. Last year, I myself did Machaney's calendar. It's not the first time I've done it, but I think this is the first time I did it, you know, in in the one year's time, keeping it instead of splitting it up and maybe doing it two years' time. it's, It's a good calendar. It takes you all the way through the Old Testament. It takes you through the Psalms twice, and it takes you through the New Testament twice. So actually, I read the Bible one and a half times last year, and it was good, mostly. But there is a drawback. You see, reading the Bible over the course of an entire year means that you... End up spreading it kind of thin. And I'm not saying there's not advantages to focusing on single passages or verses, even of the Bible. There is, um, it's certainly required for in depth study of the Word. That is a good thing. There's no question about that. But the Bible, we need to understand, is not a reference book, it's a collection of books. Most of them are narratives. And they have beginnings, they have middles, and they have endings. And if you are just reading from a reading plan that cuts the Bible up into small chapter-length segments, and then on top of that, it mixes in several of those per day, are you really reading those narratives? Are you really reading the book of Genesis if you read a small portion over the course of 48 days and then intersperse that with readings from other parts of the Bible? Are you able to follow the flow of the conversation of the book of Job if it takes you over a month to read it? If it takes two months to read Isaiah, when you get to the end of Isaiah, do you remember what you read at the beginning of Isaiah? Do you know what happens if you read the book of Leviticus over the course of 27 days? You get confused. That's what happens if you read the book of Leviticus a little bit over the course of 27 days, especially if you're not just focusing on the book of Leviticus. I'm not saying, that, the, of course, that those are bad things to read little chapters at a time or, or a verse or a passage, that those... Are certainly ways that we should read the Bible but as I was coming to the end of my daily, I think, you know, I checked off each day of the calendar maybe I missed a day here or there but I always caught up, I didn't like get a week behind, I may have gotten a day behind but I never got more than a day behind as I was coming to the end of my Bible reading calendar last year, I wanted something different, I wanted to read the Bible now there are 1189 chapters in the Bible. There are 31,102 verses, and these all exist within a specific arrangement within 66 separate books. The Bible claims to be to have one author that because it is the word of God and the Holy Spirit is that author. So to understand what the Spirit is saying, why shouldn't we want to hear His words within the context that He conveys them? Last January, I turned 60 years old, and during those years, I have at one time or another read every book of the Bible more than once, more than once, some, some many, many times. So I've actually sat down and read whole books of the Bible. I have read each one of those 31,102 verses, many of them an innumerable amount of times. And each time I read the Bible, I try to understand it in the context that it is in. But I'd never made an actual concerted effort to read the entirety of all those books of the Bible, of spending a long period of successive days immersed In the story of the Bible, laid out from the beginning to the end. I mean, if you think about it, that takes time, right? That takes commitment. That takes some hard work. That would, dare I say it, be tedious. But I admit, but I couldn't get this thought out of my head. It intrigued me, so I searched around and I found. a 31-day calendar, and I took the challenge because I am retired, and I don't have many excuses. And although I'm not a fast reader, I I can read, and it's the Word of God. You don't want to be zipping through. I I wasn't going to speed read it, but okay, I can do it. I can just power through and read the whole thing. And I did it. On January 1st, I began and I finished on January 31st, and guess what? It didn't turn out to be tedious. It was, in fact, actually very exciting. Like reading any good work of literature, the Bible has its own pacing and flow that keeps you turning the pages, or in my case, scrolling the screen because I did it on my iPad. But each day would have 20 to 30 continuous chapters of Old Testament, of New Testament, whole books at a time I would be reading. It took me anywhere from two and a half to three hours per day. But I made it through the entire Bible. And what I discovered was how clearly the entirety of Scripture, written over centuries in all its varied literary forms, spoke so clearly in a single divine voice. God's themes, his purposes, his revelation of himself, of who He, who we are as his creatures and how he has moved and is moving and active in the world around us was very clear. And the Bible pursu- uh, proves itself in this manner to be very real, as in it being a very realistic depiction of what the world and the human condition is like. Throughout the centuries of human history that the Bible depicts, it is consistent in its realism, and it is consistent with what we see in our own world around us today. The world around us is a messy place. The world events that fill the news every day, actions and attitudes of different people, we see the tragedies and the misfortunes of our own lives, our own sins and, and errors and mistakes and foolishness. All of this tells us of the wickedness and evil that pervades our world. And all of this perfectly comports with the world as described in the Bible. Now, I have memories from my childhood going to Sunday school, of flannel graph boards. Do you, you remember those? If, you, if you've never seen one, they are storytelling devices where you have flannel cutouts of people and animals and places and objects, and you can arrange them in, in various ways on this large flannel covered board and the stickouts or the cutouts will stick to the flannel board and you can tell your story. It's a visual aid. What sticks out to my memory of these uh, flannel graphs is that the people always look so happy, and they're always dressed in these really nice robes, and they're always standing around in this really idyllic scenery. And of of course, you know, these are um, storytelling devices meant for small children. But I feel that we as adults often have a flannel graph view of what the Bible depicts. We have this desire to escape our miserable existence and look to our favorite Bible passage to carry us away from all of this. But while the Bible is a place to go to for hope in the face of reality, it doesn't provide that hope in the form of escapism. The Bible, in fact, goes to great lengths to shine a spotlight upon the wickedness, corruption, and evil that pervades God's creation. And that makes much of the Bible a hard read. The Bible shows hard reality. It can be offensive to our simple concepts of good and evil, of God's goodness and of his loving care for us. But when the Bible is allowed to tell its story, not broken into little pieces or taken in tiny doses. It reveals something, I believe, far more awe-inspiring, faith-building, and hope-assuring. And that is what I experienced as I drank in long drafts from God's Word. God's promise of goodness and redemption stands framed against the backdrop of evil and wickedness. And believe me, the Bible does not downplay the wickedness. So let me give you an example of where I wanted to, where I originally thought I would begin and where we're going to take a look. We're going to examine the man that God chose to be the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeroboam, and the key to that is that God chose this guy. Jeroboam's story begins during the reign of Solomon He was the son of David. He was blessed by God with peace all around his kingdom, with wealth and prosperity, and with wisdom and understanding that were beyond measure. Yet Solomon, despite all of his wisdom and understanding, failed to walk as David his father had, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that the Lord commanded him to keep his statutes and his rules. You see, Solomon loved many foreign women, So much so that it seemed right to him that he would permit them places, shrines, and high places for the worship of their abominable gods. As he grew older, his hundreds, yes, hundreds of wives and concubines turned his heart away from uh, seeking after Yahweh and instead to turn towards these other gods. God had warned him in a dream concerning this very thing that if Solomon or his descendants would go and serve other gods then Yahweh would cut off Israel from the land God had given them and that severe judgment would come upon them. And since Solomon failed to heed this warning, God tells him that ten tribes of the kingdom would be torn away from his son's hand and given into the hand of one of Solomon's servants. God would leave one tribe for his son, however, for the sake of David for the sake, and for the sake of Jerusalem that God had chosen for his name. So the time of peacefulness of Solomon's reign comes to an end and God raises up adversaries from without and within. And this is where we are introduced to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite, a servant of Solomon's and a distinguished one at that, He was so industrious that Solomon had made him overseer over all the forced labor of Israel. Now, the Lord sent the prophet Ahijah, dressed in a new garment, out into the countryside where he encounters Jeroboam. The two of them, alone in the open countryside, have this exchange where Ahijah tears the new garment into 12 pieces and says to Jeroboam these words, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. First Kings chapter 11, 31 and 32. Jeroboam is informed that this will not happen during Solomon's lifetime, but God would strip from his son, all but one tribe, that David, God's servant, may always have a lamp before him in Jerusalem. God would give the remaining ten tribes to Jeroboam. God also promised Jeroboam that he would establish him a dynasty, just as he had promised to do for David, but only on the condition that Jeroboam will listen to all that God commands him, that Jeroboam will walk in God's ways, and that Jeroboam will do what is right in God's eyes by keeping his statutes and commandments, just as David had done. Now after this, Jeroboam must have told some others because the next thing we read is that he had to flee to Egypt because Solomon was seeking to kill him. Jeroboam then remained in Egypt until Solomon's death. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, takes over the throne, but because he lacks his father's wisdom, he manages to turn the people against him, and they reject Rehoboam as their king. The Bible tells us that, turn, that this turn of affairs was brought about by Yahweh, just as he had spoken through Ahijah the prophet. And all of Israel, except for those living in the cities of Judah, rebelled against the house of David, and Jeroboam was made their king. This led to ongoing hostility between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, but God tells Rehoboam not to go to war against their relatives of the tribes of Israel because this was God's doing. And then we come to this passage which begins the details of Jeroboam's reign over Israel, God's chosen people. This is the man, remember, that God had selected to be the king. 1 Kings 12, 25-33 Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have, done, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people, who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Jerusalem, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Now why is Jeroboam off to, what, to such a bad start? What are we to think except this is in no way what God had intended for him to do when Ahijah was sent to tell him he had been chosen to be king over Israel? Is it? because what we have here just on the surface is pretty egregious. We are meant to be reminded of the events of Exodus 32 and Aaron and the golden calf and the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai when they said the same thing. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, Jeroboam's reasoning, we're giving it right here, could be said to be strategically sound. From a strictly human standpoint, it would be wise not to have his subjects travel to his rival's capital all the time. So he uses the premise of making it easier for the people, relieving them of a long and troublesome journey to Jerusalem, which just so happened to be the capital of his rival. He therefore supplants what God had ordained for proper worship and instituted his own rules. Is it any surprise then that the people fell into further sin because of Jeroboam's actions. Will God allow this? Well, wait. God sent a warning to Jeroboam. As Jeroboam was standing by his altar in Bethel, God sent a prophet from Judah who cried out against the altar, prophesying that it would be destroyed by David's future descendant named Josiah. King Josiah and Judah would fulfill this actual prophecy 300 years later. And as immediate confirmation of this prophecy, Yahweh tore down the altar and profaned it by spilling its ashes, showing his contempt for Jeroboam's religious system. And as Jeroboam stretched out his hand, standing there and called for the prophet to be seized, we read that his hand dried up and he couldn't draw it back. And only when the prophet entreated God to restore Jeroboam's hand was it restored to him. Okay, I'm reading the story and I'm thinking I can see what's happening here. God will call Jeroboam to repentance. He will see the errors of his ways and will repent of all his wickedness and will follow God's commandments as David had. Don't forget, God had promised him a dynasty. But no. 1 Kings 13.33-34 through 34 tells us after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. But made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained as priest of the high places, and this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. The final event we read from Jeroboam's story involves once more the prophet Ahijah. Jeroboam's son Abijah is sick, so Jeroboam sends his wife to the old prophet, telling her to disguise herself and to take gifts to discover the fate of the child. And though his eyes were dim because of his age, Yahweh told Ahijah who was coming and what to tell her. Before she even enters the doorway to the place where he is, Ahijah says, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. And here Ahijah announces the doom God has sentenced upon Jeroboam and his house. Because Jeroboam did not keep God's commandments like David had, following God with all his heart and doing what was right in God's eyes, but instead he had done more evil above and beyond those who had gone before him and made other gods and metal images and provoked God to anger and cast them behind his back, God would bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam raising up a king over Israel who will kill off every male of Jeroboam's family. Only their son Abijah would die, and he would die as soon as Jeroboam's wife returned to their city of Tirzah. He alone, among the males of Jeroboam's household, would be mourned and buried. Ahijah's announcement ends with this 1 Kings 14, 15, and 16. And henceforth Yahweh will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root out Israel out of this good land that he had give, gave to their fathers and scattered them among the, beyond the Euphrates because they have made their ashram, provoking Yahweh to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Jeroboam dies after reigning over Israel 22 years. His son Nadab succeeds him, reigning two years over Israel before Baasha killed him and took over the throne. Baasha also went on to kill all of the household of Jeroboam. And for the next two centuries, the northern kingdom of Israel had the following succession of kings. After Baasha, Elah, then Zimri, then Omri, then Ahab, then Ahaziah, then Joram, then Jehu, then Jehoahaz, then Jehoash, then Jeroboam II, then Zechariah, then Shalom, then Manahem, then Pekah, Pekahiah, then Pekah, and finally Hosea. And not a single one of these kings deviated from the sins of Jeroboam. And they are called out specifically as walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. That is the refrain that you see time and time again in reading first and second Kings. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and walked in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he made Israel to sin, first Kings fifteen, thirty four. So what's the point? Maybe you're saying, well, thank you, Sean, that was a splendid recap of Jeroboam's reign and its long-lasting effects on the northern kingdom of Israel, but an edifying and uplifting message. What is your point exactly? Okay, fair question. Obviously, we should not make idols for ourselves, nor should we innovate novel methods of worship that go contrary to the established and ordered ways God has called for his people to serve and to worship him. We should not strategize means to accomplish what he said he would do when those means directly contradict the commands that he has given as a condition of what he has promised. If we do, then that would displease God and he will bring judgment upon us. Obviously, all of that is true. But I want to know why God is recording all this information for us and time and time again. I don't believe that God recorded Jeroboam's story in his word just as an admonishment to us to worship him properly. We are told Jeroboam's story along with all the events that are recorded in the Bible so that we might properly know who God is. And God reveals who he is through many difficult and troubling events recorded in the Bible, events we find hard to rationalize or understand. Jeroboam is not in the least unique or even particularly exemplary. Each of his successors was as bad or even worse than he was, and few of the descendants of David who sat on the throne in Jerusalem over Judah were any better. And it's not just the kings of Israel and Judah. I mean, if we go back to the time of Judges, How much red flannel do you think you would need to tell those stories on your flannel graph board? See, this is the reality that the Bible displays. It is the reality we see throughout the rest of history. Look who God has made to be kings, premiers, rulers, judges, governors, and presidents. How many of them have been like David? How many of our leaders today We say that Jesus Christ is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. We say we believe and the Bible declares that God is sovereign over all creation. Remember, God specifically chose Jeroboam to become king over the ten tribes of his chosen nation of Israel. The text, the narrative, drives us to the question Why did God pick this guy? I mean, that's a question that should come up. I think that's a question that if you were just to read this as an unbeliever, you'd come up with. I mean, ultimately, we know what it is we want to know is why would a benevolent and all-powerful God commit evil like this to exist in the first place? And... You know, I think that is a troubling question because reason tells us that if evil exists apart from the sovereign power of God, then is he truly omnipotent? And on the other hand, if God does have the power to prevent evil but fails to prevent that evil, then are we not right to question the goodness of his character? Is this a dilemma that we struggle with? It has led to a crisis of faith for many, and has even caused many to abandon Christianity altogether, and perhaps even someone you know. And if that's the case, then this is not something that we as Christians should ignore. If our faith cannot stand up to when it is confronted with this basic question, then what good is our faith, and what hope can we have? Unfortunately, I think many Christians do shy away from this question of evil, however. And that explains why we see so many weak and ineffectual and banal Christians and Christianity that is so prevalent in the church today, at least in the comfortable parts of the world where we face evil that is, shall we say, banal in its, deceptively banal in its existence. And that's kind of how we end up with Pollyanna churches that focus only on select verses or passages of the Bible, and they, stay, and they shy away from the tough parts. They like to focus on the so-called happy texts. But there are many texts in God's Word that end up rejecting the adjective happy. I mean, is Jeroboam's story a happy one? Now, there is... Um, this is a question that... Theologians and philosophers have made many attempts to tackle. And the fancy term for these attempts is theodicy, which is taken from the Greek words theos, meaning God, and dikaios, meaning justification. So a theodicy is an argument for justifying God. And, you know, I I, I joke, it sounds a little like idiocy, theodicy and idiocy but that is actually just a coincidence. Now some, now these theodicies, these different arguments have in the classic sense have run the gamut between a simple explanation that evil comes as a direct result of human free will And they've gone to more complex philosophical explanations. For example, a classical philosophical argument is that finite beings, because they fall short of being infinite, are necessarily evil. The problem with that is that uh, that would mean that we can never escape being evil because we will ever be finite. Adam and Eve would have been evil before the fall because they were metaphysically by nature finite. And even after glorification, we would be evil and for the same reasons. Perhaps you want to chalk the existence of evil up to free will, but that still leaves you to account for how a good being would be inclined to choose evil in the first place. After all, if I am inclined to choose evil in any circumstance, even if I choose to not act on that inclination, is not the inclination itself evil? And if you think that your will can, under certain circumstances, supersede God's will, what does that mean for God's omnipotence or his goodness? All these arguments fall short in one way or another. Ultimately, Whatever we try to come up with our, by our human reasoning proves to be unsatisfactory. And we struggle to answer for the existence of evil in the first place and why God would allow it. One thing that uh, the world has often tried to do is just sidestep the issue by saying that there is no good or evil and that you are free to choose your own path. Everything's acceptable. As long as it makes you happy and you are true to yourself, there is no good or evil, right or wrong. There is only personal choice. And, of course, the difficulty arises as soon as someone suffers at the hand of another. Everybody recognizes wrong when they're the one who is wronged. Wickedness is undeniable. R.C. Sproul wrote an article titled Why Does God Exist? where he makes this... uh, astounding statement in his conclusion. Since God is both omnipotent and good, we must conclude that there is in his omnipotence and goodness, I'm sorry, that in his omnipotence and goodness, there must be a place for the existence of evil. And I can say, having done the work and read through the entire Bible and in quick fashion in one go, that the Bible does make one thing perfectly clear, that God is all-powerful, that God is all-good, and that evil exists and is very real. The conclusion that God must have some purpose in the existence of evil is foundational to the understanding of God's divine providence. Now, if you were to have asked Dr. Stroll, he being a Good Presbyterian would have quoted to you from the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 5 of Providence, which states this, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most holy, wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of his glory, of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. But wait, you protest, I am not Presbyterian. Well, then Dr. Sproul would quote to you from chapter 5 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy." And here is a list of the scripture proofs that reveal that God is indeed governing and directing and sovereign over all that transpires in his universe. Both of these confessions and other confessions besides derived from these scriptures and other scriptures besides lay out as near as may be humanly possible within the limitations of language, God's providence over the whole of his creation, his control, oversight, ordering, use, permission, cause, governance, and sovereignty of all things, from the greatest to the least. Feel free to uh, look these up as I make my humble attempt to summarize what divine providence is, as the Westminster divines and the particular Baptists wrote in their respective confessions. Of God's providence, we may further say, nothing befalls by mere chance. God, by his foreknowledge and decree, orders all that comes to pass, and it does so immutably and infallibly. Yet, by his providence, he orders them to fall out according to second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. He works His providence, making use of means, but He is not bound by means and is free to work without, above, and against them according to His pleasure. God's infinite power, wisdom, and goodness manifest itself in His providence, even to the extent of the first fall and all other sins of angels and men. This is not just by mere permission, but by most wise and powerful bounding, ordering, and governing to a wondrous unfolding to accomplish his holy ends. Even so, the sin proceeds only from the creature. God is most holy and righteous and is neither the author or approver of sin. God will providentially leave for a reason his own children, you and I, to chastise us for our sins to reveal to us our own sinful inclinations that we may be humbled, to increase our willingness or de- and desire to more closely and continually depend upon him for the- our support, to make us more aware and watchful against future occasions to sin, and for sundry other just and holy ends. Whatever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and are good. God, in His providence, and as a righteous judge, will, for their former sins, blind and harden the wicked and ungodly. Withhold His grace, whereby He might be enlightened in their understanding and changing, and, or in their understanding and change their hearts. He sometimes will also give them over to their own lusts and corruption the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby they harden themselves further, even while he uses the same means to soften the hearts of others. God's providence reaches to all his creation, but in a special manner he takes care of his church, working all things to the good thereof. Now this is what the Westminster Divines and the Particular Baptists came up with in their respective labors to lay out what their beliefs were, founded upon what, was, what has been revealed to us in God's holy word concerning divine providence. In the 17th century, there was a uh, German polymath named Gottfried Leibniz, and he coined the phrase, the best of all possible worlds. You may have heard that before. His uh, Theodician argument, the theodicy that he came up with, was for optimism in the face of evil based upon philosophical reasoning. Now, I cannot say that Christians should not be optimistic. I would say that based upon our hope, optimism would be the very beginning of our philosophy. But even though Leibniz argued from the basis of God's omnipotence, his omniscience, and his omnibenevolence. He had the goal of trying to solve the dilemma of evil's existence to the satisfaction of human reasoning. Man wants to know the reason for the flood, the earthquake, the fire, the tornado. Man wants to know why wicked men profit, And succeed and have rule over others, while the humble and the meek and the godly suffer at their hands. But the Bible will not satisfy this particular hunger to know the reason why why evil exists. So if you are waiting for me to give you the answer to that question, here's where I disappoint you. See, the Bible does not satisfy our questions in those terms. The Bible shows us that God in his providence controls, oversees, orders, uses, permits, causes, governs, and sovereignly rules over everything that exists and transpires in his creation, but does not anywhere have a place where God justifies himself to the satisfaction of man's curiosity as to why. So is, is it profitable then to read the Bible if those questions are raised but not answered? And the answer is yes, because that is where God shows just how powerful and glorious He truly is. As you read in every situation, and as you you see every situation and circumstance unfold, as God's will is continually accomplished and His promises fulfilled, Even through the evil actions of wicked men, and the iniquity of sinful nations, you begin to see the hand of divine providence. That is why I say to you that it is so important to read the Bible, the whole Bible, and to read it in large chunks, to read entire books, to read all the obscure parts, and especially the difficult parts. I knew beforehand that the Bible was a comprehensive whole. I knew that it told a single story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, but only in the immersive act of reading the whole of it in substantial lengths of time, letting the narrative flow and unfold, did I truly experience God's providential hand moving throughout the course of all of those events. and it's In experiencing that in the pages of Scripture, I felt and appreciated his providential hand moving in the world around me and in my own life. I'm not saying that I came to an understanding of why I have suffered anything that I have suffered or why I continue to see evil all around me or even within my own heart. But I am encouraged to appreciate that Though I do not know why these things exist in God's providence, I can acknowledge that they serve his good and holy purposes and his ultimate ends. I knew without fully understanding why the 24 elders fall down before Him him who is seated on the throne and worship him, cast down their crowns before him and say, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So I went through all this just to implore you to read the Bible. Read it as a collection of books, the same as you would read any other book. I know many of you don't have two or three hours a day, and I'm not saying you need to spend two or three hours a day. But I bet you do have a slot of time sometime during the week. Read a book of the Bible. Pick one that you don't regularly or maybe have never read. Feel free to use a study Bible to give you the context. If you're reading something like Zephaniah or Haggai and you don't know to whom or when they were writing, do this. Read the book of Job. Read Leviticus. Yes, I said it. Read the whole book of Leviticus. If you got an hour hour and a half, you can do it. It will make much more sense than you think it does. And consider how fortunate we are that we have um, expository preaching in this church and that Pastor Cliff takes us through entire books of the Bible. Right now, he's taking us through uh, Colossians, so try this. Read the book of Colossians. Read it every week. Read it several times a week. If you got a half hour, read the book of Colossians. If we were to do that, I bet that uh, by the time it was done, each one of us could come up here and give a sermon on the sufficiency of Jesus. So before you read that next uh, book by some Christian author, why not take time to read something that the Spirit of Christ wrote? Read one of his books. They are amazing. They're real page-turners. And when you do, you will walk away comforted, knowing the peace of God's providence. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that we are not left to our own understanding, but that you have given us a book to read, that you have given us information that you have given us examples, that you have shown us who you are and how you are moving in the world. And though we, you are beyond our understanding, you have shown yourself, Lord, to be good, to be trustworthy, to be powerful and mighty, and to be the most awesome, the most wonderful God. And we pray, Lord, that you would just continue to draw us through your word into wonder of who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we uh, close out the service here, we're going to end with a time and uh, one more song of worship. So if you'd like to stand with me as we get into it.